Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Jennifer Wells of Brown University and the Institute of Historical Research. Her paper was entitled Spanish Wine Be Better Than French, Continental Realpolitik and Its Imperial Resonance, 1649-1692. to Today's paper is sort of on the continental dimension and imperial resonances um, with Irish affairs during the interregnum. In December 1676, English authorities commissioned a survey of Tangier. Perched above the Strait of Gibraltar, the port commanded entry into the Mediterranean from the Atlantic. It had fallen into English hands in 1661, forming, along with Bombay, part of the dowry of the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza upon her marriage to Charles II. Yet despite Tangier's clear strategic and commercial importance, English officials struggled to effectively govern the port, garrison, and surrounding city. Filled with Jews, Roman Catholics, Irish, and Scotch, the North African possession remained a pit, teeming with corruption, vice, and untouchables whose ability to govern remained questionable at best, but whose debauchery remained second to none. The survey would determine whether these English, Irish, and strangers could defend the place should it be attacked by the Moors or foreign nations, such as the French, Dutch, Spaniards, Algerines, or Turks. The answer, perhaps unsurprisingly, was a resounding no. And the blame fell squarely upon the shoulders of one man, the garrison's governor, William O'Brien, 2nd Earl of Inchiquin. Vitriolic reports characterized him as an Irishman, a suspected papist. Although he attended the English church, his family, except two or three, are all papists. As for the officers in his company, all Irish papists. How, officials lamented, had Inchiquin, a commander in France, nourished in Spain, become governor of a jewel of such estimable value that most European potentates covet the same? The answer to their question lay in measures taken over 20 years earlier by Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarian regime in England. Following the conquest of both Ireland and Scotland between 1649 and 1652, the regime implemented a series of legal, administrative, financial, educational, and religious measures designed to subdue and incorporate the two countries into England's proto-imperial network while simultaneously seeking to legitimize the new regime. In order to establish this new society, however, the Cromwellians faced a classic question that stymied conquering nations in the past and would continue to do so in the future. What was to be done with the indigenous population? The crude answer was displacement, which occurred in two broad arcs, one west towards the Caribbean and the other south and east towards the continent. In recent years, Irish historians have focused extensively on the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland and its domestic ramifications, while also taking note of the extensive deportation of Irish men, women, and children to the West Indies. What, or more precisely who, has received much less attention are the estimated uh, 30,000 Irishmen by the terms of the Act of Settlement of 1652 and surrender articles granted to Irish troops by the English Parliament fled to the continent to serve in armies during the 1650s and later played an active role in the English colonial project. William O'Brien, the future governor of Tangier, was one of just thousands of individuals who suffered displacement at the hands of Cromwellian authorities in the 1650s, which led, paradoxically, to their active participation in future imperial exploits in North Africa, North America, the Caribbean, and India. 
Today, I wish to examine how this process unfolded by focusing upon the oft-neglected continental arc of displacement, the Republic imperial ideology that motivated it, the pragmatic response of Charles Stuart to it, and its consequences during the 1660s and beyond. Taken together, I thus wish to demonstrate the importance of the wider, of the wider European dimension when assessing early modern Europe, Irish history, <clears throat> the long-term repercussions of domestic Cromwellian policies to the imperial sphere, and the central role occupied by Irishmen, both Protestant and Catholic, in the budding English empire. The first waft of displacement emanating from any official correspondence appeared in an otherwise trivial letter to Sir Richard Coote from the Commissioners for Irish Affairs in the summer of 1651. The innocuous postscript noted a kind of engagement upon the Lord Deputy, Henry Ireton, and her cells to send beyond seas 300 prisoners. If, therefore, the commissioners told Coote, you have not disposed of the 50 prisoners you took near Galway or that any others who do fall into your hands, you should do us the pleasure to send them to Dublin. No more was said of the matter, and it remains unknown whether Coote acquiesced to their request. If the Midsummer Postscript heralded the beginning of a policy that came to define the Cromwellian administration's actions towards Irish soldiers, leading Confederates, women, children, vagrants, and all other masterless men for the remainder of the decade... It would, however, prove remiss to characterize displacement as an afterthought. Rather, the policy had its roots in an imperial, a Republican imperialism that undergirded many of the regime's policies during the decade. An evaluation of both printed pamphlets and personal correspondence reveals the importance of classical republicanism upon the Cromwellians and definitively demonstrates that the parliamentarians sought to expand their new republic according to the model followed by classical Rome. As the treaty... As the treatise History of the Union recalled in 1659, the Roman Republic, which as it was the best estate in the world, so it is the best example. The English saw themselves as Rome's heirs. Emulating Rome's model in Cromwell's archipelagic expansion would in turn facilitate imperial expansion. Despite the largeness and extent of Rome's empire, England stood as a true equal, premised to expand across the globe due to the quality and condition of the above said union between England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Indeed, the conquerors in our Orb Britanno did follow the tract and steps of the Roman conquerors, whereby at length, upon their conquest, they happily arrived at the like resettlement of the union between the four discordant kingdoms of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland." Part of Rome's success in expanding abroad lay in how it subdued and incorporated its neighboring states. As the 1652 pamphlet, The Antiquity of England's Superiority over Scotland and Ireland, made clear, the English, in following the example of the Romans, first had to extinguish the great families as to their interest and power in and over the common people of both Ireland and Scotland. As the pamphleteer further elaborated, elites had to be eliminated for two reasons. First, they are the they are the only available incendiaries of the common sort, and second, the great families will be the last that will forget their old condition. In Ireland, this translated directly into a policy of displacement executed swiftly and deftly and applicable not just to the Catholic elite, but also to any Protestant royalists who supported the exiled Charles Stuart. Given that many of the elites, including Donna McCarthy, Lord Viscount Muskery, John Fitzpatrick, and David Roach, also served as officers for Confederate forces, the parliamentarians stood to rid Ireland of not only powerful families and individuals, but also men with ample military expertise who could potentially destabilize settlement efforts by inciting the thousands of young, fit, strong men who'd spent the past decade serving alongside them. 
While the commissioners for Irish affairs certainly began deporting Irish soldiers to the continent in August 1651 with an order granted to Nicholas Fitzsimmons to be set at liberty in order to raise 40 or 50 able men to be transported by Captain Richard Wiltshire to Spain, the policy did not receive official explication until December of that year. Both the Cromwellian administration in Ireland and the officers of the army issued a joint statement to the Council of State in London justifying the need to deport and mass royal, Irish royalist soldiers, whether Catholic or Protestant, to the continent. The enemy numbered no less than 30,000 throughout the four provinces, and besides, the, the people generally proved ready to join with them upon any occasion. Yet it an end to the conflict was in sight. Many of the Irish troops indicated a willingness to come in um, and accept conditions, particularly several considerable officers. For the most part, these men desired license to go beyond sea for the King of Spain's service and continue command of such regiments or companies as they can carry over with them. The civil and martial authorities humbly sought the Council of State's advice, but made clear that granting these terms was conceived to be of public advantage. Thus, beginning in the spring of 1652 with the capitulation of Colonel Richard Bork on the 8th of April and followed shortly thereafter by the defeat of Colonel John Fitzpatrick in May, thousands of Irish soldiers, both Catholic and Protestant, began to seek terms and sail abroad. Between the forces of Fitzpatrick, Edmund O'Dwyer, and Murta O'Brien, nearly 6,000 men submitted in May alone, most of whom were willing to go to serve the King of Spain, thereby ridding this country of them. Between June and December of 1652, at least 36 additional Irish officers agreed to terms. In June, Major General Luke Taff, friend, surrendered and received liberty to transport 1,000 men beyond seas, provided he could make his agreement with the Spanish agent or any other in amity with the Commonwealth of England. One month later, Muskery similarly submitted with nearly 3,000 foot soldiers, 700 mounted horsemen, and 3,000 unmounted, and in his surrender terms made plain he intended to sail for Spain with 1,000 of his men returning if he could obtain any considerable command upon carrying over the residue of his party. With the submission of the Earl of Clan Rickard and several officers of the Connaught rebels, an additional 5,000 men sought transport to Spain, leading the commissioners to gleefully conclude all Connaught is clear of any enemy. So effective proved the transportation of conquered Confederate soldiers to the continent that by January of 1653, just one year after the civil and military administrations in Ireland proposed the policy to the Council of State, these same administrators estimated that roughly 13,000 men had gone from Ireland to the service of the King of Spain since April of 1652. In total, over 80 issues were ordered decreeing deportation to Spain between 1651 and 1658, with the vast majority between the years 1651 and 1654. Yet displacement to Spain quickly remained quickly became fraught with unintended, unintended consequences as Republican theory quickly became displaced by continental realpolitik. Warnings from the English administration in Ireland to the Council of State recounting Spanish malfeasance surfaced throughout the spring of 1653. The Spanish frequently failed to pay commanders or merchants who had shipped Irishmen to the continent, forcing men such as Colonel John Nelson to seek recompense from the English Parliament in 1658, some seven years after transporting 1,000 Irishmen from Kerry to Spain to the tune of 2,700 pounds. Likewise, a 1653 intelligence report indicated that the ships which conveyed men into Spain were stopped by the governors there and the masters of some imprisoned. The Irish commissioners accordingly recommended that nearly 1,000 soldiers John Reynolds sought to transport to Spain instead be deported to Flanders, particularly because officials there promised both performance of the contract and the safe return of ships. 
Other Europeans also became aware of Spain's questionable use of Irish soldiers and rapidly turned this to their advantage. The French author of a letter intercepted in Paris noted that he had seen a letter from Madrid which doth testify to the ill usage of the Irish received there. Those once wholly Spanielized no longer held such an inclination, which the writer ascribed to Irish weakness before declaring that the Irish will cause the ruin of Spain. The French author also knew, however, that many Irish had begun to abandon the Spanish cause, choosing instead to serve in French armies. I wonder, the author pondered, whether the Spanish should pay the traitors, being that they are already well paid in French Guienne. The Irish, too, appeared displeased with their Spanish displacement. One of John Thurlow's agents on the continent reported as much, suggesting that the Irish there and everywhere were much discontented with his majesty of Spain by reason that he does not regard them at these times, prompting the agent to surmise that the Irish would soon come to the Duke of York. Former Confederates displaced to Spain, including Brian Rowe O'Neill, Lieutenant Colonel Farrell Duncan, Thomas Gerlach and countless others could not get a penny of money and would rather heartily be in Ireland again. The problems associated with deportation to Spain did not stench the flow of Irishmen shipped to the Iberian Peninsula, but prompted a subtle shift in policy whose repercussions would affect both Cromwellian and Stuart policies later in the Interregnum and well into the Restoration. Beginning in October 1653, with Edmund O'Dwyer's transport of 3,500 men into Flanders to serve the Prince of Condé, increasing numbers of Irishmen sailed not for Spain, but for Flanders, France, or Portugal. As the commissioners noted upon acquitting Muscury at the High Court of Justice and granting him leave to raise and transport 5,000 men into uh, Flemish service in October of 1654, such a number will be a very great service to the public and tend much towards the peace of this nation if exported to Flanders. English authorities in Ireland were not, however, the greatest beneficiaries of this literal and figurative sea change in policy. Charles Stuart and his exiled court eagerly anticipated the arrival of these troops. Richard Talbot, a former Confederate soldier who had fled into exile following the siege of Drada in 1649, saw an opportunity in November of 1653 to convince the French Cardinal Mazarin to accept Irish troops for service and to assist in a plot to subvert the English Commonwealth. The troops would not come only from Ireland, where one Mr. O'Sullivan recently received a commission to transport Irishmen so discontented through their slavery and tyranny of the enemy to France, but also discontented Irishmen from Spain. Indeed, Talbot desired that Irishmen deserting the Spanish service declare by an instrument subscribed by them why they came to this service from Spain and upon what score. Once all the Irish arrived in France, an eminent person of our nation, an Irishman, would command the troops in our king's service. The eminent person in question was Murrow O'Brien, the lord and subsequently Earl of Inchiquin, and father to William O'Brien, the future governor of Tangier. Perhaps unsurprisingly, O'Brien the Elder joined Talbot in these machinations and lobbied Car Cardinal Mazarin to support the influx of Irishmen. Contemporary records indicate that the majority of Irishmen serving in Spain did, in, during the early 1650s did indeed abandon their, their Spanish posts and join with Charles Stuart to serve on behalf of the French prior to 1657. European politics, however, ensured that the Franco-Hibernian amity remained short-lived. In 1654, England went to war with Spain, each side goaded by the belligerence of the other towards their respective commercial and colonial possessions. On the continent, rumors began to circulate as early as January 1656 that Cromwell would enter into an alliance with France, effectively merging the Anglo-Spanish War with the larger, larger Franco-Spanish War. The exiled court naturally supported whoever opposed Cromwell. 
In the words of Lewis Fennell, the uncle of the displaced Confederate Gerald Fennell, uh, urged his nephew, try if Spanish wine be better than French. Of tantamount concern to Charles and his principal advisors was the allegiance to the Irish troops who, following their arrival in Spain, had left the services of that country and joined the French. Now the Stuart court desperately needed to renew their amity with Spain. Over 400 letters between 1656 and 1657 detail both the panic of the court and the lengths to which it went to convince not only these Irish soldiers, but also their Scottish counterparts, who to their own displacement largely fought on behalf of the French, to switch their allegiance and serve the Spanish. George Lane, an exiled Irish Protestant, royalist, and close associate of James Butler, Marquess of Ormond, offered a series of concessions to both the Irish and Scots fighting on behalf of the French. With Charles Stuart's blessing, Lane assured leading commanders, including Muskery, Inchiquin, and Richard Grace from Ireland, and John Middleton and Andrew Rutherford from Scotland, that if they served for the Spanish, his majesty would reward these men both monetarily and with like pensions upon the overthrow of Cromwell. As preposterous as this sounds to historians, fully aware of the dire financial straits of the court, and to be fair, as preposterous as this offer probably sounded to contemporaries, the Irish and Scottish commanders returned to the service of the Spaniards, and true to his word, Charles compensated them for it following the demise of the protectorate and the restoration of the monarchy. Uh, after England acquired both Tangier and Bombay in 1661, Charles appointed a series of Irishmen to key administrative positions in those territories. In addition to the aforementioned Inchiquin, both John Fitzgerald, a Catholic officer who commanded an Irish regiment in the service of the future king in the Low Countries during the Interregnum, and Thomas Butler, 6th Earl of Ossory and son of Ormond, both enjoyed powerful roles in, in Tangier. Samuel Pepys, who actively participated in the Tangerine Project, recorded in his diary that Charles had a particular affinity to Fitzgerald, to Fitzgerald, who had sailed with his regiment and that of Farrell's for Tangier in January 1662, where he took up a position as deputy governor. When the governor of Tangier, Andrew Rutherford, a royalist Scotsman and another Catholic, who had also switched allegiance from fighting for the Spanish to the French during the 1650s, was killed in a Moorish ambush in May of 1664, Fitzgerald was appointed governor. In an amusing twist of fate, Charles II charged Fitzgerald with reorganizing the English, Irish, and Scottish regiments in Tangier in order to eliminate the national differences between them. Such an action had the effect of both spreading veterans more evenly across regiments, but also, and perhaps more importantly, broke up clusters of former English parliamentary soldiers espousing a, quote, dangerous degree of republicanism and who had fought on behalf of Cromwell in Ireland and at Dunkirk. Paradoxically, the once vanquished Fitzgerald and a retinue of Catholic and Protestant Irishmen he had surrounded himself with in Tangier now had authority over the very parliamentary troops who had first implemented the brutal orders leading to their continental deportations. Equally important were the connections Irishmen in Tangier fostered with both the West and East Indies. A number of Irish priests had either fled to the continent or been deported to the Caribbean during the 1650s, yet authorities in both Barbados and by mid-decade Jamaica feared a Catholic onslaught and promptly shipped these men to Portugal and Spain. Beginning in 1662, a number of Irish friars began to appear in Tangier, spreading their popish ways. 
Although it remains to be determined whether these Irish friars were in fact the same priests denied entry to the Caribbean in the 1650s or were merely Cromwellian exiles who had fled to continental Irish seminaries, the connection nonetheless reveals the long-standing consequences the Cromwellian policy had upon not just the domestic Irish landscape, but also the Irish diaspora and even more important, the shape of the future English colonial enterprise. At a more elite level, moreover, William O'Brien ultimately capitalized on his experience as governor of Tangier and proceeded to serve as governor of Jamaica until his death in 1692. The East India Company began to take advantage of Tangier's position at the cusp of both the Mediterranean and Atlantic to recruit Scots and Irish into its service, while English authorities often sent troublesome Irishmen to the colony of Bombay, where they proceeded to build administrative quarters because expendable Irish and Scots were much preferred to native-born Englishmen in these endeavors. By way of conclusion, while I have provided just a glimpse into the links between the domestic policies of Cromwell and Ireland and their wider residence on both the continent and by extension in Tangier and Bombay, it is important to bear in mind the central role that domestic measures had upon a global scramble for economic and political might in the rapidly modernizing world of the mid-17th century. Moreover, while understanding the parliamentary regime's theoretical reliance on Roman models for deporting Irish elites and fighting men to the continent remains understudied, yet vital for our general understanding of this decade, realpolitik and the unquested, unintended consequences that French wine be better than Spanish had just as significant, if not more of an effect, upon the shape of the burgeoning English empire. 